This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Recently, a construction crew in Aurora unearthed what appeared to be human bones. We now know the bones are likely hundreds of years old, and they're believed to be the remains of someone of Native American descent. Let's get some insight into this forensic-turned-historical investigation. We're joined by state archaeologist Holly Norton. And Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. When someone discovers what appear to be human remains, what happens next? Uh, are the police called first? Yes. So in Colorado, we have what we call the unmarked burial process. And if somebody discovers human remains, the first step is to call law enforcement or the local coroner, and they make a determination of whether it is of what we say forensic value, meaning whether it's a more recent or modern case uh, or if it is archaeological. And how old do you think these bones are? Uh, That's difficult to determine. Our unmarked burial process doesn't always necessarily focus on determining uh, scientific data like age. Um, But given the... Given the state of the remains, as well as where we found them, uh, they could be of um, they could be quite old. They could they could be centuries old. Now, in Colorado, you get a handful of cases like this a year. How common are these kinds of finds here versus other places around the country? That's a great question. Actually, we have more cases of human remains in the West than we do in other parts of the country because we have really good preservation. Uh, not only our climate from it being uh, somewhat arid, but also our soils. So I actually come from back east, and back east we don't have as many um, really ancient human remains because the soils are so acidic. And so human remains um, go away much quicker. So how do you know the bones are of Native American descent? We know that the bones are of Native American descent in a couple of ways. First of all, forensic anthropologists, and we work with um, several very good forensic anthropologists in the state. They look at different markers on the bones themselves, um, particularly teeth can tell us uh, areas of the world that uh, the bones would have been descended from. Um, We also can identify whether something is native or not based on how it was buried. Um, And so non-native burials um, often look different than prehistoric native burials. And so if you think of non-native burials, it's something that most of us are very familiar with. People lying a kind of supine in a coffin. Um, You have different sorts of of goods and different tribal groups buried their dead um, in very different ways. There are strict protocols for discoveries like these that are believed to be the remains of Native Americans. What are the laws? So there are two overarching laws that people think of when it comes to these burials. There's the federal law, the NAGPRA, Native American Grave Protection and Repatriation Act. That is a federal law that applies to institutions that get federal funding, Um, most often museums and universities that have human remains in their collections. And And NAGPRO really encourages these institutions to repatriate these remains to tribes. Not all human remains fall under NAGPRA. And so Colorado was really at the forefront of developing a state process for remains that are found on state lands or or on private lands. And it really acts in the same way. The state unmarked burial process also requires that uh, human remains 
get repatriated or um, given back to tribes as quickly as possible so that they can be treated with respect and reburied. What are Native beliefs around their people's remains? That is um, a really huge question. And um, I personally will never speak for um, any tribal beliefs. What I will say is that here in Colorado, we have 48 tribes that identify all or parts of Colorado as ancestral homelands. And each of these tribes have their, their own set of beliefs and their own set of philosophies or outlooks on um, on, on their dead and on their ancestors. And so what we try to do is honor all of those outlooks and all of those beliefs um, in treating all of the remains that come into our care with as much sensitivity and respect as possible. The current process uh, is very different from what used to happen with Native American remains. How have thing cha- things changed over time? So I think traditionally... Um, People really think about human remains as scientific objects in the same way that projectile points or pottery shards or, or whole pots are scientific objects. And over the last, you know, 25, 30 years, um, because of because of partnerships and really trying to reach a deeper understanding with tribes and with our tribal partners, shifting has thinking has shifted in the archaeological community and that we really view these remains as the people that they were. They're not scientific data necessarily. Um, And for the most part, they're not scientific data at all. And so really what we are attempting to do is not gather information from these burials, but really try to ensure that we are working with the correct tribes, some of the correct folks to treat these as their ancestors and, and as proper human remains and make sure that they get reburied appropriately. That means researchers can't really learn about them because they can't be studied a lot. Um, I would imagine that frustrates some archaeologists. I think it does. And there are still some controversies around NAGPRA or unmarked burial process and you know conversations in the discipline. But I think that most people recognize that this is really about social justice. And so that is the approach that we take to burials. Um, I would also say that archaeologists are scientists. And if we have questions that need to be answered, our job as scientists is to find the data to answer that. And if human remains are not the appropriate data sources, then we use other data sources. Um, And a really great example of that is here in Colorado, we have some um, fantastic researchers, some associated with Crow Canyon Archaeological Center in the Southwest, who've been using other types of remains to ask questions about things like human migration out of the Southwest. Um, What they've been doing is looking at domesticated turkeys and domesticated dogs Mm. and those remains and how those remains um, traveled, so to speak, across portions of, of Colorado to understand what the humans who had the turkeys and the dogs were doing. Just briefly to wrap up, what happens to the bones that were found? What happens to the bones that were found? Um, in general, we work directly with the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, the Southern Ute, and the Ute Mountain Ute. And together, our four organizations come up with a plan. The 
um, plan that we generally try to default to is what we call burial in place. And if we can put the bones right back where we found them, that is the, the best option for everybody. Holly, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Holly Norton is Colorado State archaeologist. We've been talking about what happens when centuries-old remains are found around the state. Reporters got a rare chance to see inside the privately run Immigration Detention Center in Aurora Monday. The facility has been in the news because of an ongoing outbreak of the mumps and because of the decision to expand the center to house more inmates. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry was on the tour and spoke with Ryan Warner. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. What was this tour like? Well, we toured this facility with a pen and a piece of paper, which means there were no cell phones allowed. And unfortunately for radio, there was no recording equipment allowed. There were a bunch of officials from the Department of Homeland Security there and ICE who talked all on background about what was going on. Well, what's it like inside and why did they do this now? Well, you know, frankly, inside is very much like a state prison or a jail, mostly men in jumpsuits. You know, there were some televisions, some libraries, places to work out here and there, you know, a huge kitchen. We didn't communicate with any of the detainees. Um, And I think they did this now because they've been in the news lately. There's been a lot more scrutiny on the detention center, both for the bed expansion. They've just added 400 beds and also the public health problems. Yeah, the public health problems. What about the disease outbreak? What have you been able to learn? I think by and large, what we've learned was they say this outbreak stems from detainees who brought the mumps and chicken pox up here from the border. They're mostly people who come to the border and they're seeking asylum. There have been mumps outbreaks recently in parts of Central America. Honduras declared a state of emergency last year due to a mumps outbreak. So that's where the officials think this is coming from. Now, you said that you saw mostly men. Right. There were women in there, but we didn't see the women. Got it. How many cases of mumps have there been in the Aurora Detention Center? Well, the actual cases, very, very few. Officials say they had two confirmed cases of mumps in February. And the Tri-County Health Department reports at the end of the month, they had seven probable cases at the time. There were also two cases of varicella, which is the virus that causes chicken pox in the fall of 2018, and then another two cases of that this year. So there are almost 1,400 people at the Aurora Detention Center. So these are kind of small numbers. But because these diseases are highly infectious, they're quarantining a lot of people who may have been exposed. And I should also remind people that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine that most Americans get, it's not sort of a widespread vaccine that you get across the world. So they're starting to do that with all of the people who come in as well. And what about testing them in advance? Customs and Border Patrol does test people before sending them to different facilities around the country. But mumps has apparently this very long incubation period. Uh So they may test negative and then show up with symptoms later. Now, why has this bed expansion been so controversial? Well, Congressman Jason Crow, I talked to his office a lot about this. This is in his district. This is in his district. He doesn't feel like he was given proper heads up that they were going to add 400 more people. He doesn't feel like they have given him any sort of assurances that they are staffed properly, particularly medical staff. Let's be um, clear, this is privately run. Right. This is a privately run facility. But, you know, the GEO Group, which is the company that runs the prison, was simply responding to a Department of Homeland Security contract. They have 
all these people coming to the border seeking asylum. They're trying to find places for all these people across the country. They are expanded in Aurora temporarily just through April. They have a contract with DHS, and it might expire in April. So this might all be done in April. They might shut the expansion down. You talked about whether there's sufficient staff. Do they have enough doctors? Well, they have one MD, actually, for the whole place, which doesn't sound like a lot. They have a lot of nurses. They have a couple of physician assistants. And they did not add a doctor with this expansion. But they say they are meeting the minimum standards of detention center sort of medical personnel. But Crow's office is really concerned. Congressman Crow. Allison, one last question for you. You reported last week on an immigration bill that Colorado Democrats want to introduce in the state legislature. Did that come up at all on your tour? Well, one part of it did. There is a proposal in the legislature. um, It hasn't been introduced yet, but it will be to ban detainers. This is the practice where local law enforcement hold people at ICE's request. ICE said for the first time, I've never heard this in a year of reporting on this, that when police departments don't cooperate with them on this front, they're getting more undocumented immigrant arrests Because what they're doing is instead of going to a jail and picking up someone, they go to someone's house after they've been released for jail or they go to someone's work. And they're picking up other people around them who may also be undocumented. That could just be spin. I'm not sure. But I thought it was really interesting. I've never heard that before. Allison, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Allison Sherry is CPR's justice reporter. She spoke with Ryan Warner. Allison just toured the Immigrant Detention Center in Aurora. Here are a few insights into eating disorders from a new book. For one, our culture needs to learn to accept all body types. And dieting doesn't work. The book is called Sick Enough. The author is Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani, a national expert on eating disorders based in Denver. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the title of your book, Sick Enough. What does that mean? Well, people who have eating disorders fundamentally believe that they aren't sick enough to receive care and to change their behaviors. So I used the title sick enough, which is immediately recognizable to someone who's had an eating disorder or who has one, in order to give them the message that whether they have five of the medical problems I talk about in this book on the medical complications of eating disorders, or whether they have one, They are sick enough to change their behaviors and to get help. And why do you think they sort of rationalize that they're not sick enough? I mean, this is part and parcel of the fact that eating disorders are not choices. They are life-threatening mental illnesses. That distortion of self and body image are all a part of what makes these so serious. How do you define an eating disorder? I think people have all different definitions for what that means. Eating disorders are strictly defined in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Number 5, the book within which all mental illnesses are defined. Anorexia nervosa is broadly defined as a body weight that is significantly low compared to developmental stage or height as an adult with a fear of food and a distortion of the body and a great fear of gaining weight. Some patients vomit or use laxatives. Some purely restrict calories. A typical anorexia nervosa is a diagnosis that is poorly named because it's actually much more common 
than anorexia nervosa. And the people have all the same behaviors and distortions and torment. They just don't happen to be in visibly underweight bodies. Then in bulimia nervosa, people binge on food and then purge to get rid of it. And in binge eating disorder, people binge on an excessive amount of food without being hungry for it. And they end up feeling very guilty afterwards, but they don't use compensatory behaviors. As we said, a major focus of the book are the medical problems that come with eating disorders. Will you talk about some of those? Absolutely. When somebody doesn't eat enough food, the part of their brain that I call the cave person brain, which is the part that runs us as a mammal, kicks in. And the cave person brain says, oh my goodness, you're starving. I'll save you. So It slows our metabolism. It changes our digestion. It changes the way our brain works and our hormones and our skin, everything else, and then causes a lot of problems that can get in the way of people's recovery. Like what are the problems with uh, slower metabolism? Um, You know, what happens to your skin? One example is what happens to your heart. When your heart is part of a body system that's not getting enough nourishment. And I'm not talking crazily starved. I'm just talking inadequate energy intake. Your cave person brain, just like a bear in hibernation, gives the signal, we want to spend fewer calories. And so it may slow the heart rate at rest in order not to spend extra calories on an extra beat of the heart. But then when somebody gets up and moves down the hallway and back, their heart rate goes faster because their muscles are malnourished, including their heart muscle. So we see low heart rate, for instance, in starvation changes, regardless of body shape and size. Another example would be that digestion slows. When people aren't taking in enough calories, their stomach stops emptying food normally, a process called gastroparesis. That can leave people feeling really full and bloated and nauseated. And of course, the eating disorder feels that medical symptom and goes, oh, my intuition is telling me I shouldn't eat anymore. Mm. And it actually perpetuates the cycle. One thing I found very interesting is uh, how you approach this issue of, of weight stigma. You're right. You can't necessarily tell by looking at someone whether they're healthy or unhealthy or if they have an eating disorder. So you know, that goes against, I think, conventional wisdom. That's so right. And it's one of the parts of the book and of my current clinical work that I'm most passionate about, this greater engagement in social justice. So here's the the state of the standard science right now is that people in larger bodies are called overweight and obese, which labels them as having a medical problem even if they have no medical problems due to their body size, they are told their body and their eating is the problem, and that if they just eat less and move more, their body size will decrease and they will be healthier. But isn't it true if you're at a lower weight, I mean, that you are healthier in terms of your heart and some other medical issues? There are correlations between higher body weight and certain medical problems, of course. But here's the reality. You cannot actually tell whether someone is healthy or not by looking at them. 
Because in my clinic, I have people who could be on the covers of magazines who are profoundly unhealthy physically and emotionally because of what they're doing to their bodies to have their body look a certain way. So instead of judging people by their size, and physicians do this all the time, for which reason I regard medical professionals as an oppressor class to people in larger bodies, there's a new philosophy called health at every size or haze. It's new to me. It was developed in the 90s by therapists and social justice advocates who wanted something different for individuals in larger bodies, some of whom had binge eating disorder, most of whom didn't because they're not directly correlated. It encourages patients to nourish themselves for joy and for satisfaction with a wide variety of foods, eating moderately of food types that might be considered junk food, but certainly not cutting them out altogether because that generally only triggers the desire to eat those foods more. It encourages people to move for joy and within their level of ability and interest. When people do this, that's where real health comes from. So if you can't necessarily tell by looking at someone, obviously there are clinical tests to tell whether someone has a heart problem or other problems. So that's how you really look at the health of a person. I do. When it comes to my patients in larger bodies, I don't even check body weights. It is not a vital sign that tells me good information. What I do is listen to them. And I start my conversations with them by asking them, what are your goals and values? What I find then is that if I've got a patient in a larger body who has medical complications like diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea and fatty liver and high cholesterol, rather than tell them what they've been told in doctor's offices, which has shamed them and implies that, oh, it never even occurred to me to eat less and try to lose weight because many of them have been trying to do that their whole lives. Instead, we shift the focus. I have patients who within 6 to 12 months, they've resolved their diabetes. Some people who are on 300 units of insulin a day are now completely off insulin. Some people who could barely walk 10 steps in their home are now able to go sledding with their daughter or hiking with their son. I assume you get some pushback from folks in the medical community that they think weight can cause severe health concerns and you need to be direct about it. Yeah. I get a lot of puzzlement from the medical community and sometimes from the broader community when I talk in this way. People like to construe a weight-inclusive perspective as being one where there are no rules, I must be espousing junk food for everyone, and of course I'm not. Instead, what I tell them is, the way we're doing this topic as a country isn't working. And furthermore, it's causing harm. So what if we stopped doing the thing that's not working and causing harm, and instead we focused on behaviors? Instead, we said, I want you to eat all of the food you need to nourish your body. Ideally, I would like to get you in with a dietitian who is a health at every size focus as well. And let's see if we can change the behaviors because I'm convinced that your health outcomes will follow. And so far, 
it universally has. And you also say in the book that dieting almost never works. Dieting doesn't work. The reason dieting doesn't work is that that cave person brain, that part of our brain that runs us as a mammal and was evolved to protect us from starvation, keeps dieting from working. Evolution works, you know. We evolved in a time of scarcity, and we only recently in human development have found ourselves in a time of consistent plenty for the most part. So our cave people brains are still active. They defend our body weight. They drop our metabolism. They try to get our weight back to where it was before the quote-unquote famine started, plus some in case you should go into the next famine. So body size and image, um, and I'm thinking about families and how they focus on food, should body weight be a taboo topic at home? Yeah, actually. Rather than focus on our children's and our own body size and shape in our homes, we should be focusing on food and movement behaviors. Not in terms of strict black and white, right and wrong, but in terms of We're going to move our bodies because it's joyful to move our bodies within our ability and interest. And because that keeps us strong to do the things that we love in this family. And that food should not be posed as good for you or bad for you, but ideally as something that we consume together as a family with our own personal cultural traditions and food traditions optimally enjoyed together in a mindful way rather than under, you know, distractions. And that sweets or carbs, all of these things need to be part of our lives because they're all around us. To restrict them is to make them delectably desired rather than if we eat them moderately, we just enjoy ourselves and enjoy what our bodies were meant to do. This is the way in addition to many other things that we prevent eating disorders. Because well-meaning parents might feel, oh my gosh, you know, I can tell my kid is gaining some weight or my kid is getting teased at school about their weight. I'll focus on it with them and help them. And the answer is, in their homes, children need to feel unconditionally loved and accepted. It doesn't mean we focus less on health. It's just that we know now that health isn't improved by body shaming anybody. Jen, thanks for joining us. Andrea, thank you so much for having me. Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani is a national expert on eating disorders based in Denver. We spoke in November. That's our show for today. We hope you'll join our community of supporters if you haven't already. You're with listener-supported CPR News. Thanks for joining us. I'm Andrea Dukakis, and this is Colorado Matters.